and we're back. We're back. Yes. Another episode of Beyond the Block. Thank you guys again for joining us. Uh, Derek, how you been, man? Great. So this past two weeks, I watched the first two seasons of Dear White People on Netflix. Yeah. How you enjoying that, man? It was really interesting. It was entertaining, moving, uh, somewhat informative. Mm-hmm. But I think it really brought some of these issues into a narrative that can really compel people's movement Mm. because you can hear things on the news there's a sense in which you know how salt makes things taste more like themselves (laughs) like in the right amount yeah like it'll bring out the the flavors that are there correct and it will accentuate i think there's a a, a similar thing for good art whether that's music or poetry or drama or uh movies and film is it can it can actually make what's happening seem more real okay which is kind of paradoxical because it's a fictionalized thing yes but it can move people and and i i found the same thing was true with when they see us Mm. that you could read the news about it but then when you actually saw it on the screen it it rang true in a very vivid way yeah Absolutely. Yeah. Did you see uh, when they see us? No, still can't bring myself to watch it, man. Like it's like, yeah, I played it during the first week. So I made sure that, you know, they got those streams. You know how important those first week streams are. But I still can't bring myself to sit through four and a half hours of black trauma. Like I know what it is. And I'm not saying that I'm above what happened to those young men. Mm -hmm. I am saying, however... I know how, I know how, I mean, that, that's a true story. It's a, right. it's almost a documentary. It's practically a horror film to somebody like me. You know what I'm saying? I believe it was made for us, but I also believe that black people aren't necessarily the intended audience, which is very rare for a black work of art. Very much, most of them are, most black artists for us. You know what I'm saying? And even when they see us, in a way, is for us. It's ultimately for our benefit because the more people know the extent to which, you know, the horror and injustice happened to the Central Park Five, the better off black people are going to be in this country. But at the same time, we already know that. You know what I'm saying? So the primary audience, intended audience, is definitely people who are not black. And um, it is more important that they see it for that reason. That doesn't mean I'm never going to see it, but I'm just still not in a place to where I can handle that much black trauma in one instance. Every week, there's something, it seems. Like the week that movie came, the week that series came out, something in America happened to black people. The week after I tried to see it, that's when that pregnant woman with a four-year-old and her husband got accosted by police in a very aggressive and violent manner Mm -hmm. i was not and you know that was just a minute and a half clip i wasn't about to watch four and a half hours for uh for when they see us so i just need to be in a place to where i can handle that kind of you know almost abuse that kind of emotional abuse and it's tough because it you can't make it all right in the end no you can't even when you tell the truth um it's you still can't bring back everything that these five men lost and their families too yeah um and that's another thing that really played out is how i think 
it might have been Oprah who said, "Well, when one when one member of the family is incarcerated, the whole family is in a sense yeah. incarcerated." Absolutely. And how it it just devastated these yeah. There's there's a lot there to unpack and it's not it's not a pretty story, which reminds me a lot of the Bible. A lot of people think the Bible should be like a children's book where it's warm <laughs> and fuzzy. There's a bunch of mess, for real. violence, trauma, tragedy mm-hmm. throughout the Bible, and it's adult literature. Yeah, yeah. You it know, is. and uh, we can talk about the Bible later. But Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, actually. There was some good stuff in the Come Follow Me lesson this week. I have a few news things I want to talk about. Okay, where do you want to start, Derek? So I'll start with... Um, so Pride Month is wrapping up. Oh, before we get to that, oh, yeah. Pride Month is wrapping up. I just want to say c- quick congratulations to my little sister and her fiancé. Um, it looks like my youngest sister is getting married. I don't know if there's going to be a date. Technically, it actually hasn't happened, but by the time this episode drops, my youngest sister is going Ooh. to be engaged to her girlfriend, and Yay. I'm super happy for her and awesome. proud of her because we need some wins in the romance department in my family and also... I love her. I love her fiance. Like she's good people and is going to fit in the family great. So, just wanted to say that real oh, quick. Oh, that's great. Congratulations. Um so yeah, so this is the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. This uh oh. just basically on Wednesday, I think it was. Um Wednesday or Thursday. And um in connection with that was uh the affirmation which is the LGBT Q Mormon family and friends and allies group um, came to New York City and they're do, they're doing that this weekend to celebrate Pride. Um, it's also this has been the fourth anniversary of marriage equality throughout the United States. Just a few days ago was the fourth anniversary, mm-hmm. and I want to say first of all that's not the the goal. That's just the first step. We've got so many other things that I think are actually more important, like. Um, Dealing with hate crimes, employment and housing non-discrimination, um, conver- conversion therapy, all these other things. Marriage, yes, I obviously I support marriage equality, but that's not the the center of the of the issue. I mean, that's for certain people with that step in their life that they have the privilege to even take that step. Yes, obviously that's the just thing to do is have marriage equality, but that isn't uh, what what our movement should revolve around. Mm. Um, So I want to talk about with all these anniversaries, like we have to think about where we're going as queer people and where we've been. And one of the things that I learned this week was that Hans Christian Andersen, the famous uh, Danish fairy tale uh, writer was, uh, was bisexual and, um, we don't know whether he had actual sexual relationships with both men and women, but he wrote very intense love letters um, and had romantic passion for other men in his life. And uh, and I felt, what's the word, maybe let down by the world for not knowing that before a few days ago. Because, mm. um, you know, he wrote Little Mermaid, he wrote The Emperor's New Clothes, he wrote uh, so many things that many children... Uh, know well and love and I'm like we've got queer people in in all these areas and then we don't know about them and part of it is these things were kept closeted and kept private um, up until recently but the other thing is 
now that we know them, we still don't tell their stories, and mm. somehow we don't uh, we don't know that. And I'm wondering how many more people. And it has to do with a, a sense of connection to ancestors because my parents are straight, mm. my grandparents are straight. I don't have any ancestors who are queer except those that I'm adopted into, right? And I can claim, you know, famous queer people as as my ancestors and and feel a sense of continuity and heritage and pride that I'm moving forward and that gets deprived when we we don't know who's queer and that's why it's so important for those of us who can be out to do so all these people saying well why do you need to tell people that you're gay I don't go around telling people I'm straight well there's a whole bunch of privilege wrapped up in that question Uh right I think people being out as queer is is a life-saving um, act of love mm. for the next generation. Big time, big time. And that's something that straight people don't have to worry about. That's the definition of privilege. If you don't have to worry about it, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, uh, for them, and that's privilege. Mm. Um, and we can connect this with... Uh, um, we want to talk about Taylor Swift. Yeah, I was hoping you would go there because I... I really feel like this, like this, these two subjects segue very well into each other. Um, you did watch the music video for her new song, right? I did. Okay. Now, let me just preface this by saying I don't hate the song, and at face value, I don't hate the video either. I mean, song is kind of a bop. I will probably play it again. I will probably put it on my playlist somewhere. Maybe. No, I will not, actually, and I'm going to tell you why. So, when we went to Pride, first of all, Boston Pride broke a record this year for the most entries into the parade. A lot of new companies came in and, um, you know, good for them or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I feel like these companies that came into Boston Pride or come into Pride in general really only like this is what they'll do. When the month of June rolls around, they will slap a rainbow (laughs) on just about everything they own and sell it to gay people. You know what I'm saying? Like that is what they do. They pretty much put rainbows in their display windows, rainbows on their clothes, rainbow-fy their brand name or whatever their logo is just so they can sell it to gay people better. And, you know, get your money, get your coins, get your, like, do what is good for business or whatever. I, I get it. It's good business. But that becomes a problem when you are literally using a people's marginalization to sell your product. And I feel like that's what Taylor Swift did. Now, Taylor Swift... And, you know, Todrick Hall was actually one of the executive producers on this project. Happy for him. But um, it just seemed like so much. Like, she got all of the queer people she could find. I feel like she found all the queer people she could find and just dumped them in this music video. Because literally every famous queer person was in there. Every drag queen. Like, Laverne Cox was in there. Uh, Ryan Reynolds was in there. RuPaul was in there. Todrick Hall. Billy Porter. Like... You know she did that for the black people. You know she did that <laughs> for black gays. Because Billy Porter is literally our monarch. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, he is literally the monarch of black gays, I feel like. So, you know, she really got everybody in there. Ellen was in there. Like, old boy from Modern Family was in there. Like, it was filled to the brim with every gay celebrity she could find. It just felt like she was trying way, way too hard. And what... Ha- Let's consider for a moment what Taylor Swift has built her brand on for like the last almost decade. Yeah. 2009. That's when Kanye West happened. 
And she's pretty much had been building her brand as America's favorite victim for like a whole six years or seven years. That was like basically her identity. And um, afterwards, you know, the alt-right kind of co-opted her, calling her their Aryan princess. And she never told them to keep her name out their mouth. She has never been politically active. You never heard her say anything political. And remember this buzz that, I don't know if you heard this buzz, but like a month or two months ago maybe, people, there started to be rumblings that Taylor Swift was about to get more political and stuff. And, you know, there was a buzz about it. And then she comes out with this, which is just a giant, I don't know, money grab, it felt like. Because it's Pride Month. She has no she has no history of saying anything political. And just about every gay person in this video felt like a prop. You know what I'm saying? Because it was still her music video. It was still her song. It was still about her. The Onion came out with an article. Did you see this Onion article? No. <laughs> the Onion article that came out just a couple of days ago, or I think it came out the same day as Taylor Swift's music video. But the title was, Taylor Swift comes out as cis heterosexual comes out as a heterosexual cis straight white woman like that was the headline of the onion article because it just <laughs> seemed like a giant coming out for taylor swift it didn't seem to be about the gay struggle at all you know what i'm saying and i really want to know what is taylor swift gonna do next like where is she gonna go from here like i don't know she mm -hmm. doesn't have a history of doing anything for the community and i don't think when the month of june ends she is going to be saying or do anything for the queer community yeah. there's just no indication that this is a genuine move it feels very contrived and it feels like something she just released during pride month so that all the queer community is going to be bumping her music playing her songs and her music video and rejoicing that all the gays are in the music video like that's basically what she seemed to be saying throughout the music video look at me and every famous gay person you know Tant France was in it there's one more so <laughs> yeah I, I mean I'm not an expert on the the whole pop music scene and culture so i don't i can't really speak to what the effects would be but i think um my my first impulse is that uh visibility even if it's on not the best terms and even if it's you know has a has a straight person at the center we can work with that i'd rather have that than nothing at all mm. Um, Let me be clear. I'm not mad at any right. of these other queer folks that are in the video for yeah. making their money and, and making think, their appearances. I think what she's doing is 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 there's a there's a there's a line between um, you know co-opting people and then also increasing their visibility. Like, are you using them for your visibility? Or are you actually yes. <laughs> okay? That one. Um, That's what she's doing. And I think at the bottom is this issue of accountability because is does she hold her out is she holding herself out as accountable to all these people in her video and all of her queer fans? If she is, then we can work with that. And right? I need help with that because too many of Taylor Swift's fans currently are like MAGA ish or MAGA adjacent. Oh, like, I didn't see. I don't know the. I don't know those things. So well, that I'm, I'm learning here. Like I said, the alt right has kind of co-opted her well, as their Aryan princess. You know what I'm saying? Well, then she needs that's to not, do something about and that. And that's not to say that Taylor Swift has ever espoused anything like that. I I don't know. I don't know what her life is. I I mean, she just barely let us into her political life about a year ago or so. But you know, it's been too long for her to be like one of the only people in Hollywood or only people in the industry to simply not repudiate anything that the alt-right has said. And especially when they put their, when they put her name in their mouths, 
her silence just said entirely too much. Yeah, and I want to talk about something that I noticed in this video is basically the whole point of this video is she's talking about, I think, a lot of her online detractors who are anti-gay and, and something like that, and she's responding to them and saying, you need to you know, calm down, you need to sit down, you need to step back and stop being anti-gay. But what she did is she portrayed the anti-gay people That's with their my second problem. Yes, say something as, on that, Derek. As like dumb white uneducated rural bumpkins people backwoods and that's there there's a whole bunch of problems with that because yes what you do is if you make that the focus then you miss all the homophobia that is um polite and not dumb backwards people from the country it's, yeah and that you know the dumb backwards people from the country like we ain't even paying them any mind you know what i'm saying <laughs> like they are a problem but they are just so easy to ignore you know what i'm saying like they're all the way out there and yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of sophisticated anti-gay stuff that's yes. doesn't even match yes what she's portraying in the video and i Absolutely. think this other stuff is probably even more dangerous yes like can and, we work sorry go yeah. ahead and then the what's also dangerous is the people who are silent who are like oh i'm i'm not going to um take on any risk i mean i've got my own life and i'm and i'm not going to take any risk to help the gay people i'm mm. not going to put myself in danger which is that's what a really a real good ally does is do mm. something that shoulders some of the burden off of the, the the targeted population and onto yourself, and you're alleviating. If you are doing something that's that's adding to the burden, even economically, like buy yeah. my stuff. What they should do is give out free rainbows, which sometimes the corporations do give out free rainbow rainbow stuff. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, stuff going on, and it's 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 really tough to. Uh, Another tough thing about being an ally is that the that whatever population you are trying to support is going to be diverse, and they're all going to tell you different things. Yeah, like, and um, I mean, I hate to say this, but there's certain black people that I don't I don't really take them seriously, mm -hmm. and there's certain gay people that I don't like. Milo, like, do not. <laughs> Do not put it, you know, don't listen to him. Whatever he says gay people need, that's not what it is. Do the exact opposite, yes. actually. Like, yes, he that's is, what we need. Like, he's now going to be the superstar in the in the straight pride parade. So he actually is going to be a part of that. Uh, that's what I heard. That's oh, my god! Like, this is, this is making me. And let me tell you another secret is for years and years, and 60s, 70s, up until uh, recently, in order to come out as gay, you had to have all your stuff together. You had to, to be courageous and talented and so funny or so brilliant or so artistic or so connected or so wealthy that you could survive everything else. Yeah. Um, only the best the characters best could come out. Yes. Because only those could handle it. Only those could be, you know, self-reliant and, and whatever. Now we've gotten to the point where um, not good people can come out. Yeah. People like Milo, people with characters that are um, ex exceptionally problematic. Yeah. And there's going to be gays that aren't cool and funny and smart yeah. coming out. Right. So it's so we have to one of the tragedies of our normalization is once we're normal, then a anyone, no matter how awful they are, can be gay. And I'm like, I want all the gays <laughs> to be good, but I can't I can't micromanage that. And yeah. And uh and yeah, and uh, yeah, uh, and so yeah, we have to be prepared for not the queer people not all being cool anymore. Yeah, and we're just gonna be like everyone else. Hmm. 
And I'm really glad you brought up how the country bumpkins, the backwoods. And some of them are gay. Yeah, and some of them are gay because, you know, internalized homophobia is a real thing. But like some of them are pro-gay. I mean, there's people out in the country that don't don't have a lot of education and they're pro-gay. Yeah. Which means no one has an excuse. No one has an excuse. But like the fact that the people I'm worried about and the people I wish he talked about in the music video or targeted as the most dangerous of the anti-gay are, you know, the 45s, the Mike Pence's, the Mitch McConnell's, the people who are currently in office mm-hmm. that are supposedly educated in suits who are enacting policy that affects the thousands, right. if not millions yeah. of people who are going to be negatively, negatively affected by such policies, you know, taking away their rights. I, I much rather would have seen her take aim at those folks. And the only reason that stood out to me so much is because if you're going to take a moment to talk about detractors and to portray them, at least portray the ones that are actually the biggest mm-hmm. problems. Yeah. And that's that's what I would have liked to see. So, again, my question is just all, what what is Taylor Swift going to do after this? Like, is she going to remain an ally when the month of June is over? Once she has done this, what is going to be her next move? I want to see some consistency. Like, there are some companies that have displayed some consistency. Did you know that MasterCard is allowing you to be able to get a card where if you're trans, you can put the name that you want to be called Mm -hmm. on your card? Okay, so. Yeah, that's good. It's great. It's freaking great. They're doing stuff. They're actually doing something. I want to know. Stuff like that can shift the whole window. Absolutely. Of what is, is what is what it what should not be acceptable in this in this society anymore. Yes. Um, transphobia is, is is still very very acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and by shifting the culture, because um, yes, obviously shifting the law is one thing, but shifting the culture is is an even greater challenge. Mm. We're gonna talk about that too. Like, uh, but for the time being. What, what what next piece of news is this going to say? There's also Dan Reynolds and Dan Love Reynolds. Loud. Yeah, tell me your thoughts about that. So We watched the documentary watched, last year, do you remember? Yeah, Believer. Yes. Yeah, we watched that together. I think the thing about the documentary is you have to know what it is. It's not a story about gay people. It's a story right. about him. And yeah. if you know that that's what the frame is, it's a story about his evolution and thinking and his journey towards allyship. Yes. Then you know what you're, you're getting into. Um did you not when you originally watched it? No, I knew, I, I knew I kind of knew what it was. Okay, um, and that's that gets back into the tough thing is is I'm not saying allies should have be afraid and like oh I can't do anything or else I'm gonna you know get all these um, people saying I didn't do the right thing um, I, because I think on average you know on balance people like Taylor Swift and Dan Reynolds. I th- I think I'm assuming they're doing more good than harm. I would hope so. Uh that's that's what I'm hoping. Uh And they intend they to are. do good, yes. you know? They do. I, I really they're, do believe that. It's better than doing uh it's better than being anti-gay, right? Certainly. So, they're doing they're doing something. I'm glad they're doing something. Part of it is they should be, you know, be in touch with the population that they are supporting and making sure that that they are being led, you know, this the whole accomplice language is so much like they're doing the stuff. The, the, the target population is the one who's leading and you are at their service. That's really what it should be. And that you're accountable to them. Mm. Uh, but the problem is people like T- Dan Reynolds has, has probably more voice I- than any queer person in the church. Um, in, maybe even including, uh, Tyler Glenn, which is not really in the church anymore. Yeah. 
Um, Imagine Dragons are definitely yeah, more visible like even than the he's right he's now. even more famous than just Mormon famous. Yeah, he's yeah, more so than like, Mormon famous. Like, yes. not everybody knows yeah. that these groups are Mormon. Yeah, and so he's got a lot of responsibility. I hope he lives into that. I hope he um, and there there were problems with Love Loud last year about not having a, a trans or um, uh, accessible restrooms. There was a lot of mess, and I don't even know how the, all that got sorted out. And if, hopefully, it's different this year. But th- but the main thing is that these yeah allyship is about taking the microphone once you get it and passing it on it's about amplifying the voices that are all there it's not speaking in place of or for someone it's about see here's my my challenge as a as a gay person in the church is is one of impact Mm. only a few probably hundred people in the church know who i am uh and so my the like the sphere of of where my voice can get is only so far but if someone who has more of a voice can take what i'm doing and amplify it and Mm. help get it into places where it wouldn't otherwise get and part of it is straight privilege is it's not just that i'm one person it's also because i'm gay there's certain people who wouldn't otherwise listen to me unless a straight person says okay derek is is faithful and and great and and whatever they say about me that will get other straight people who are a little bit hesitant Mm -hmm. or a little bit scared to even stick a toe into justice for my people i need that help and and there's a sense in which it's not like i need people to speak for me but it's it's helping get my voice into places where otherwise wouldn't get and that's one of the biggest things that allies can do it's not just i'm not just saying i need all queer people um or any marginalized population, that's uh, that's one of the most important things allies can do is help get those voices into where they otherwise wouldn't get. Um, and I, I know there's some gay people who are like, oh, well, I can speak for myself. And yes, you can. But, but your voice only goes yes, so far. Yes, it only goes so far. And that's why we need people to, to step up. And I wish we would talk more about um, there's things we can do without changing doctrine or policy. Um, like have more queer people speak in general conference mm. and more. I mean, I don't think we've had any, so <laughs> that we, any that are yeah, out that and that would be so life giving for so many people. Um, it would help catalyze so many con- conversations at the local level that people think are off limits and these are not off limits conversations. Mm. So that's, I think that's uh, something important that Dan uh, and Taylor can do. Um, they can also give me money if they want. If they really <laughs> want to support the gays, throw money. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because all Pride Month, just right. Send our cash app, Venmo us some. Yeah, get some money to you guys. I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, the the whole concentration camp. Um, we've got a large raising of our consciousness around these issues. I just had five real quick points. Okay. One is, and you can respond to these if you want. One is, yes, there is actually a certain privilege in being able to sit in a stable room um, and debate back and forth what is or is not a concentration camp. Now, it's not to say we shouldn't have that conversation, but to just acknowledge that the people in the camps, they probably know how awful it is without even needing a word for it mm. or, or even having 
the the energy or time or luxury of debating what to call it. The fact that we can debate it right. is, is a privilege itself. And it's we why should I didn't do debate team, by the way. <laughs> and I'm not saying we shouldn't have that conversation. It's about how do we uh, mobilize our privilege, right? Because we shouldn't feel guilty about our privilege. We should mobilize it to serve the uh, others. Two, I just want to say that in the um, concentration camps of Nazi Germany, there were gay men um, who were targeted because they were gay and they had pink triangles on them. I think most people know this history, but it uh, obviously it's not the most uh, 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 the most numerous or the most prominent or the most. Uh, um, there's many other groups that were targeted by the Nazis, and only a, a small number of them were were targeted because they were gay men. But it's important to say that 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 they put my people in concentration camps. Um, and uh, many of these people, even when the camps were liberated, were not actually liberated. They, uh, based on the, the crime of, uh, that was in uh, paragraph 175 of the German laws, they had to serve out the rest of their sentences in, in German prisons. One of the, I think they were the only people who weren't actually liberated by the liberators. Um, and so we have to think about this. There's a history of... of um, of all of the evils conspiring together, being anti-gay along with being anti-Jewish, along with being anti-people um, of color, all of these things are all intertwined. Um, and so there's a sense in which I, a, as a gay man, need to speak out. Um, three, we have to re remember that the Nazis used the word concentration camp as a euphemism for what they were doing. Concentration camps um, have always been had different goals or different purposes. Um, uh, even in the U.S., uh, FDR called our our group our, our camps concentration camps. Our camps, by the way. Yes, our uh, our internment camps. Internment camps. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. Uh, for the that. for the Japanese Americans. Yes. Which is another problem. Um, when we when we look at what's happening on our border, our first comparison should be what we've already done to the Japanese. Um, and to Native Americans and all these other things to say, look, American be, can be bad, which gets me to my other point. My fourth point is about I, f I finally realized why all these right-wing people are mad when we call them concentration camps. It's not be so much because they're happy about all the human rights violations that are happening there. At least I hope they're not happy about that. It's because we have attacked this fundamental orthodoxy or even idolatry about the American narrative. We've got this American narrative that we're exceptional and that we're innocent, right? And that we would never do anything really horrible and wicked, which they haven't been look listening to people of color for the past 350 years. <laughs> um, we have done some, and are doing, some um, awful things. Um, and uh, and, and calling them concentration camps is so offensive to them because they think America is different. Right. And that America is good. And that America would never, uh, well, well, you know, you, you could have, if you were a proud German, you could have said, you could have said that about Germany in the 1920s and 30s. Like Germany was a very, I hate to say it, but very um, uh, civilized place. It was a, is a it was a, a center of education and science and art and culture 
and uh, it was it, there's you. I think we have a problem if we think we're beyond ever doing anything like that. And I think the other reason behind the the importance of calling them concentration camps is to. Re- and I think I might have said this last week, is to realize that if if we wait until it gets as bad as Auschwitz before we do anything, it's too late. Yeah, that's the lesson we learned from Germany. You need to stop this in 1933, not in 1941. And so they had concentration camps that at first just isolated people without trial um, and without killing them uh, for political reasons. Um, and then only along the way did did this precedent uh, turn into something really awful. And so that's what I'm saying is we need to stop this now. It's just like um, that's, yeah. And so the, the whole point of, of Never Again is is the, the lesson we learn is um, – that if you can't make any possible analogy to the Holocaust, some people say, well, it's, it's too out there to make any analogy. If, if you've ruled analogies off-limits and any comparison as off-limits and inappropriate, then you have failed Then you have failed to learn the lesson of never again because mm-hmm. how can you ever commit to, to preventing this from ever happening again if you're not willing to ever even consider making any uh, comparison. I'm not saying that every anything right here is as bad as Auschwitz. It's yeah. not, right? And I think that's what people find offensive. But concentration camps are bigger than than just Auschwitz, and the mon- and the Germans did not have a monopoly on concentration camps anyway, and and they just used it as a euphemism for what they were really doing. Yeah. Um, Aus- Auschwitz was much more than a, just a concentration camp. So I think a- AOC is absolutely correct morally, um, factually, historically in labeling these as concentration camps. And we have to live with uh, – I mean we don't have to live with the camps, but we have to live with this discomfort of look where we have gone. Mm. What do you think of all these things? Like it worries me that the fact we are debating – what we are calling these places where we're keeping our children hasn't tipped us off to the fact that we may have gone a little too far. Like if we are debating what we call these places where we keep children and are getting offended about calling them concentration camps, that should be a clue that we're not in a good place at all. And so much of my problem with wannabe allies or people who are in positions of privilege is that they spend way too much time worrying about being called racist or homophobes or being or you know what the camps are called than actually addressing the problem of children not having adequate hygiene or you know living accommodations right or you know black people not having rights or members of the lgbtq community not having permission to live authentically in their truth like that is the real problem not the fact that we are calling you guys problematic or the fact that we're calling you guys insensitive or privileged like worry less about the labels and more about the actual problem yeah like that is a big deal for me however i don't know man just it it just boggles my mind that people who are in positions of influence just take 
so much care to protect their feelings and not enough care to protect actual people. Yeah, and that's another lesson we can learn from Germany is that as as hard as it is to admit it, we have to admit that good people can do bad things, especially yes. good people just doing their job, yes. being one little piece in a in a larger system. Yes. There are people who can be actually good and do bad things. And yes. you know, I, I, I'm one of them. Yeah. All right. of us are. Like we had this conversation a week or two ago. Two things can be true. Yeah. You can be a good person. You can have um, great intentions. You can be a good person and still have problematic ideas. Yeah, you know, you know, right wing people call me racist. Um and I'm not afraid. I'm not I don't debate them on that because that's not the point. My feeling of whether I'm a racist or not is not yeah. even proportional to what people are going through, what people of color are going through in this country, and what needs to be done there. That's right. where the focus needs to be, not Correct. whether I'm like approved or not. That that doesn't even matter in no, the long run. It it's matters not. like it's not even I the point. Yeah, and I think, and and when people call me racist, and it's usually white people. I don't think it's person about of to color. say. I'm pretty sure this is white people. It's saying white this people to you. saying that because what I'm saying is I'm uplifting the voices of of people of color, and they're saying no, that's racist because now you've got this preferential treatment based on their race. I mean, well, according to your backwards definition of racist, I yes, I I literally do treat people of color differently because I listen to them. When they're talking about their experiences, if, if a white person is talking to me about what black people go through and a black person is telling me talking to me about what black – I'm going to treat them differently. Yeah. I'm going to believe them differently. I'm going to trust them differently. I literally am treating them differently based on what they have the right to talk about and mm -hmm. what who has the experience and can speak with authenticity. If you want to call that racist, what I'm not even going to debate you on that because that's not – I don't need to exonerate myself. My mm. feelings don't matter. Like black lives matter more than white people's feelings. Word. That is a bar. And if I put my feelings in the center, it doesn't matter. I mean, it, that's not the point. I, we need to actually do what's right and, um, and not get hung up with like, am I, you know, absolved of racism or not? Cause that's, because A, we're not, mm. um, we who are white in this country, and B, that doesn't actually help people of color. Mm. It, it, you know, uh, anyway, so that's that's where I'm going. So there's a lot of, of that we can learn from these conversations. Cool. Thank you for sharing. I only got one. Sorry, I only got one more piece of news here. This is, um, this is just something I saw circulating social media a little bit ago, and this was a bit of church news. President Ballard talking about while he was talking to a bunch of mission presidents, I assume these were newly called mission presidents. And uh, one of the highlights of his talk that, you know, made the headlines was he was telling these mission presidents to not teach their missionaries to invite people to be baptized on their first encounter or their first uh, lesson, but to invite only as instructed to do so by the spirit. Now, me listening to this or me seeing this being said, I was like, well, well, duh, like invite people according to to the spirit talk to people according to the spirit but i had to go think about my own mission and i remember when my new mission president came in he did tell us this much now obviously there's some nuance to the way in which we invite people to be baptized but we did but the point was to let people know that that was the goal that if we talked to them if we shared truths to them then we were going to let them know the implications of those truths so the invitations would also would often sound like 
as you come to know the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon and the mission of Jesus Christ and the mission of Joseph Smith and his role in restoring the church of Jesus Christ, will you be baptized? You know, because that's the whole point. And that's what all the that's what the truth of all that means. That is the angle with which he came to it. But um, I, I don't know if Elder Ballard is talking about even that context. But, um, you know, I, I don't even know. I didn't think too much about this, but it would seem to me that it is pretty obvious that we should only invite people to become baptized according to according to the spirit that all of our interactions with uh, with investigators ought to be by the spirit yeah i have a story about this so i didn't serve a mission i uh joined the church too late to be uh eligible to serve a mission but i have i'm a ward missionary and occasionally i have gone out uh, in fact quite many times i've gone out with uh missionaries with full-time missionaries and taught people lessons both in my ward with my own missionaries uh, who's serving in my ward and other missionaries there were some missionaries serving the Boston ward uh, one of the Boston wards and they had an investigator who was gay and they said and they had heard of me or, or actually they knew me somehow um, and I knew them and they they asked me to come and help teach a lesson and so I did and it was the first lesson with this uh, investigator and it was going well. We talked a lot about a number of different things. Um, and then towards the end, they invited him to get baptized on the first lesson. And I didn't say anything to them, but I said something to them afterward. Can you, do you remember the, the invitation, the way it was extended? Uh, this this might have been two years ago. I can't remember exactly the wording. It wasn't, okay. it wasn't as nuanced as, well, this is the eventual goal, and if you eventually come to believe these things, would you perhaps hypothetically? It wasn't even that okay. nuanced. It was okay. basically um, a much more high pressure. I don't remember the exact words, but it's like we we think you should get baptized. Do you want to set a date? Oh wow! And it was. I don't remember exactly the words, but it was it was much more. And this guy was very shocked and came out of nowhere for him, and he found it quite inappropriate. And, and I, uh, I don't think they ended up teaching him much after that. Um, but up until then, he was, he was actually quite receptive. And I have a theory about this, um, which I'm, ne I'm never going to be a mission president probably, but, but my theory is you should never give an investigator an invitation unless you think that they're they're likely to say yes mm. because the thing is a step in the right direction gives you momentum to keep taking steps in the right direction a step mm. in the wrong direction gives you momentum to keep taking more wrong steps right it's kind of like if i if i ask you to give me five dollars and then you give me five dollars and say hey can i borrow five dollars later next week if i say hey, can you lend me 50 you're actually much more likely to lend me 50 now you have a degree in psychology right correct okay it's this whole foot in the door thing. Yeah. Like if you if you make an incremental thing, you you actually um, make it more cognitively consistent for the person to then say yes. Yeah. Um, and the and if the the reverse is true, if you've uh, it's true in the dating world as well. If if someone says no to one thing, it makes it much more easy for them to, to say, say no. no to other things. Yeah. And so we don't want them to say no. So we shouldn't we shouldn't 
ask them to do something that that we we're pretty sure they're going to say no. Yeah. Because that just drives away the spirit. It it makes it awkward. It makes them uncomfortable. We don't want to drive away, especially for someone who is a gay investigator. What there's so many other things to deal with. We don't want to do anything. To, to scare them off and so what I think happened is you've got this almost from the business world this always be closing type of sales thing of mm-hmm. you should start from the very beginning trying to commit to baptism like yeah no because uh, what I told the what I told the elders to do as I said give him an if he said no to that you're now you've now lost some uh, social capital with him what you need to do is give him an invitation that you know he'll say yes to like invite him to even and I told them to do this if people aren't reading the Book of Mormon don't invite them to read you know if they're contis- consistently not doing these things what you should do is give them something you know they'll do say I want you to commit to do something nice for someone that you normally don't do something nice for this coming week and then report back to me how you felt and how because the more we get people living into the spirit and living like the savior the more likely it is they're going to take more steps in that direction because mm. this the spirit then has a foothold in their life i see and uh, but so many missionaries i hear them like ask inviting people to say i want you to read this chapter or i want you to do this and they say keep saying no then the more they say no the easier it is going to be to to just keep saying no forever mm. and and that's why I think not only is it uh, kind of rude to invite someone to baptize. Now, now it's different. It's different if they're if they're eager and they're well prepared, and you can tell by the spirit that that's where they're going, right? That's different. You can make an exception. It's kind of like the rule of you shouldn't ask someone to marry you on the first date. Although using that example might not help our friends in Utah, who some of them probably do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was thinking about this just the other day. A friend of mine but it, legit it, asked the question, hey, I'm going on a first date with this girl, and I want to ask her if she's open to some kind of courtship on the first date. You know what I'm saying? And I'm just like, you don't need to do all that like on the first date. It's, right, it's right. just the first date. You're yeah. literally trying to see if you even want to like do any more with this person. Okay. And so I basically said all this to these missionaries, to these young 18, 19-year-old elders, um, and they agreed with what I said, and then they said, yes, but in our training they told us to invite everyone on the first, on the first lesson. And training. I said, well, that training is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I, I basically said you have to – I mean if, if it makes sense to do so, you can, but don't make it into a cookie-cutter thing because – when you look at almost any invitation or call in the scriptures, it was never cookie cutter. Yes, there are cases where Jesus went up to people and said, you know, drop your nets and follow me. We're going fishing for people. And they did mm-hmm. with very little preparation. Yeah. And there's other cases where um, you've got dis- uh, people who for, uh, for years and years are learning and growing and then they and then they make a commitment and so it, it's going to be different and that's something that we should do better in our training is realize yes more reliance on the spirit which I think is what the whole preach my gospel was supposed to be about anyway supposed to be yeah but another issue is I think taking guidance from church leaders in a very wooden fashion 
I mean, not realizing that there's now there's certain commandments that like come from, uh, you know, come from the Lord and, and come through our handbook. And actually we've got you've got commandments on those. But this this principle of of you must always invite uh make an invitation for baptism on the first that's not a commandment that's not anywhere in our that's just what someone said somewhere and i think there's people in this church that take every word from a priesthood leader and take it as the gospel truth which actually stunts the growth and development of that person because they're outsourcing everything to someone else to make their decisions for them they Mm. do not become celestial adults with initiative and responsibility and and growing on their own terms and being able to handle uh, a celestial level responsibility. You can't do that if you let everyone else spoon feed you everything. It's, uh, and so that's kind of what I'm saying is we've got to be uh, better as a people. Certainly. I like that a lot. Like this is the purpose of the gospel is to teach people how to be godlike. And if we are just deferring to our quote-unquote training or deferring toward, sorry, deferring to cookie-cutter responses to very complex questions and answers and situations and circumstances, then we're not giving Mm -hmm. people the true opportunity to be godlike, and we're not giving ourselves the opportunity to be be godlike. So I really like that, and I really think that Elder Ballard is onto something with this particular uh, instruction, I hope. And to me, it goes back to, I hate to say that they're not real familiar with the scriptures, but that's kind of where I go, is if you think that everyone needs a cookie-cutter thing and that every um, missionary uh, opportunity is going to play out the exact same, like, you don't know you don't, you don't know the scriptures. I hate See. to be judgmental about, well, you don't know the scriptures, because there's a lot of privilege involved in the, the path that I've chosen that Allah has allowed me to spend um, many, many hours uh, every week studying the scriptures, mm. um, and I'm I'm fortunate that I've had that privilege. Mm. But there's still a level of of uh, we've all got to uh, we've all got to do this on our own. We've all got to be converted on our own. You can't just like with the oils um, in Matthew 25. I can't share my conversion with anyone else and transfer it to them. I can yeah. only inspire. But on the end, end you have to be changed yourself. I can't do that. Yeah. Yeah, that is a that is actually a great segue into uh, the Come Follow Me. Unless yeah, we have, I don't have anything else. That's great. Then uh, let's go ahead into the Come Follow Me lesson for this week because we are starting in the Acts of Yay. the Apostles. And yo, I, yo man, um, this is always my favorite part of New Testament instruction. Simply because, not that I get sick of Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> that's just a that that's not true. But I really like seeing what happens to real people, real men of God in real situations when Jesus is not around. Like this is the first opportunity we get to see the apostles in action when they are not relying so Mm -hmm. heavily on the comfort of the presence of Jesus. And one person in particular that really that I really enjoy listening to is the apostle Peter, Mm -hmm. like the boldness with which he declares the word when Jesus is gone. And, you know, we always knew that Peter was impetuous and bold, but there seems to just be an added layer of power and authority upon this guy when Jesus ascends into heaven. Mm -hmm. Now, there were two things in this particular uh, lesson. Um, Again, we are doing lessons for the following week, not lessons for tomorrow, uh, as it were. But um, 
this is for this is for the Acts. And what I really enjoyed in Acts three, uh, one verses one verses one through eight. Now, uh, th- this is personal to me for a couple of reasons. I, I just want to highlight the first one, which is that. The, the, okay, sorry. This is the story mm-hmm. of Jesus. Wow, not Jesus. I'm still stuck on Jesus. This is the story of Peter and John healing the lame man in front of the temple. This is significant for a couple of reasons, but the one I want to highlight first is the fact that this man comes out here every day in front of the temple and asks for alms. He's carried out here every day and he asks for alms. This man is also about 40 years old. That's what we learn later in the scriptures is how old this man is. About 40 years old. Every day he's been carried out here, uh, sat in front of the temple, and he asks for alms. And uh, then here come Peter and John. And what Peter says is pretty powerful because I feel like this is very indicative of how the Lord himself responds to us when we spend many days, many hours, many years asking for the same thing every day. God, or in this case, Peter, will come up to us and say, silver and gold, I have none, but that I do have, I will give thee. And what Peter did was heal this man. He healed this lame man, gave him strength in his feet and his ankle bones. Dude stood up, leapt, and worshipped God. Now, this is the other thing that's significant. Okay, let me just highlight the fact that this relates very positively to a lot of us. We will spend a long time asking for a certain blessing. It might even actually be money, like it was for this lame man. But then the Lord will give us something that will bless us even more, which brings me to the second part of the significance of this healing. This man was disabled. And when you are disabled, you can't go into the inner courts of the temple. You aren't allowed to step in there. And this is where the inner court is a symbol. The inner courts of the temple are symbolic of a greater relationship, of a greater intimacy with God our Father. This man was prevented from that because of his disability. What Peter and John effectively gave this man, what they blessed him with, was an opportunity to have a greater intimacy and a greater closeness with the divine. And I feel like that's what God often gives us when we pray for a certain blessing, but he gives us something else that often gives us a greater opportunity to come closer to him and to be more like him and to learn more of his word. Like for me personally, I have been praying for a certain blessing for a long time. You know, I've been working in entertainment for like the last four and a half years and it was my it was my full time job for the last four and a half years. I have not been able to partake of that as my full-time job for at least the last year. And that has been very disappointing to me. It's actually been a source of a lot of my stress and, you know, you know, depression, if I can go that far. But God has put a lot of positive things in my path that have allowed me to get closer to him. This podcast being one thing, you know, this association that I get with you, Derek, on a regular basis. Every week we come here, we talk about the gospel, we talk about things that we like to talk about and that enrich us and that bring me closer to Christ. You know, I have those opportunities. I have opportunities to serve in my ward. I have opportunities to serve in, as, a, as an ordinance worker and baptistry coordinator in the temple. I have opportunities right now that have made it very easy and have made the divine very accessible mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, honestly, if I could say that same thing had I actually had the blessing that I've originally been praying for. So I just wanted to uh, I just wanted to name those particular two things in this story, this story of the lame man being healed. There are some significant layers there of um, 
One, being given the blessings we need and not the ones we want. And two, those blessings being given that we need that often strengthen our relationship to the divine and with the divine. Yeah, thank you so much for those um, thoughts. And I think we should always be cautious um, and sensitive when we when we apply the scriptures um, when there's issues of disability. Yes. Because we read, it's so easy to like read the stories about um, deaf or blind people being healed and, and magically fixed. And that actually doesn't happen um, for, for many of our people, uh, many of our disabled friends. And, and, and we, c- we can't make our norm the, uh, the center and the experience of disabled people as, oh, what you need is to be like me. Because that's really what what uh, um, gay people hear. That's really that's really what so many people hear, and we have to realize that that um, what in many cases they we we should not offer them is a fixing, but a way of making the same thing accessible to them on their terms. Correct. Right. That's like why we put ramps in place uh, so that people can people can access. And um, so that's that's another thing that we need to think about is is rather than fixing about how do we make things accessible, how do we accommodate people's uh, uh, disabilities or differences, mm. and w- what does that look like, um, and how do we preserve the dignity of the person? Because if we just say, oh, you're going to be fixed, or even if you say, oh, you're going to be fixed in the resurrection, that may not be what they n- need or want to hear. Mm. And I should probably say that is actually the real miracle of what happened here. Right. Peter and John gave the lame man accessibility right. in more ways than one. Right, right. And, and so that he didn't have to beg anymore, so that he had access to the temple, um, so that he had access to to, uh, to dignity, things like that. And so that should be that. those should be our goals. Mm. Um, I wanted to talk, and this gets into the main theme of what I'm going to do, is I need to say, well, I'm a convert, and I knew, knew the Bible very well before I joined the church. Um, uh, and uh, it was almost like you're a Harry, po- Harry Potter fan, right? No, I'm not. <laughs> no. Is that going to be a deal breaker, Derek? No. <laughs> okay. Well, I know what I know where the sorting hat put me. Oh, I put you on the. <laughs> I don't know, Slytherin. Yeah, you <laughs> you went straight there. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Slytherin man. Okay, well, I'm a. I I want to be a Slytherin too because okay. that's where the. Are you a Hufflepuff? Are. I don't know. I haven't taken one of those official okay. sorting tests. But anyway, so here's my theory. Imagine this little nerdy kid like me who grew up with Harry Potter, which I didn't grow up with Harry Potter. It came out too, a little bit later. But imagine this little kid who grew up knowing Harry Potter so well, like knowing all the spells, knowing all the characters, knowing all of the history and the details, like Hermione in, in, the, in the series. Like she was this know-it-all. She knew all this stuff. Um, imagine some some kid like us growing up with Harry Potter, and then he when he was about eighteen, someone comes up to him and say, "You know how much you like Harry Potter? Well, it's all real." That's what happened to me in the Bible. Like I grew up with a Bible where there were temples and there were prophets and there were miracles and where the heavens were open and where God moves courageously and strategically among us, and and how how we've got this ongoing sense of revelation and how we've got um, this this 
actual relationship with a living and moving God who is a consuming fire. Like all of that, I thought, well, that was just back in those Bible days. <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore. We don't have any more temples. We don't have any plan. And then I was shocked. Like the Bible came alive. And like I'm like, what? You're telling me all of this is real? <laughs> and we can have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we can have like this um, – God breaking into this world with a, a strong foothold of, of justice and, and peace and security and liberation. I'm like, wow, all of this stuff actually happens. And this mm. was brought back by um, Joseph Smith. Uh, I'm like, wow. And so for me, the Bible came alive. And it's, it's just really an interesting journey for me. But, uh, but here's one of the things that came alive is when we look at the book of Acts, we really see... Um, the beginning of a church where you have um, God's servants doing things, prompted by the Spirit, doing things quite radical. And most of what happens is you realize that the Spirit moves on the margins. Even your yeah. your story right there uh, of the man outside the temple is one of them. God moves on the margins. Mm. And the same thing happens with... Um, with Joseph Smith, God moved on the margins of American society in the early 1800s, choosing mm. someone who other people wouldn't have chosen in terms of education, access, resource, riches, all that. Um, and he does this same thing here in Acts. He chooses, you know, fishermen and other people who uh, didn't have a didn't you know didn't have a lot of theological studies. Although Paul did, Paul did. Paul did, yes. Um, but. I just want to add the day of Pentecost as further evidence of that. Yes. You know, yeah. it's one of those parts where the gift of tongues was, it made sense to me. Like right after it talks about the miracle of Pentecost, it goes and lists mm -hmm. all the nations that these people are from and why right. they were able to understand all the different languages, all yeah. the different languages. Like people came from, there were Jews everywhere and they yeah. all were able to hear the gospel in their own mm -hmm. tongue. Like, yeah, I just want to add people, we, a lot of Christians may not have this background, but there was a festival. It's called Shavuot in Hebrew, which means weeks. It's the festival of weeks, which is what we call Pentecost. They were in. Jerusalem for this particular pilgrimage festival. It's didn't they didn't all come there for the purposes of this uh, Pentecost experience? Okay, um, but so they were Jews from around the world were gathered there, and um, and that gets back to something. Uh, we've got the cut. This the spirit was was promised. Okay, Jesus promised. Yes, I will give you another comforter. And this is when you have this manifestation of the gift of the Spirit happen for them. Mm. And so part of being um, a gospel people is living into and leaning onto those promises. Oh, like yeah. we have promises today mm -hmm. that haven't been fulfilled. Yes. Um, we, um, for, for years, uh, 
there there was a sense of of a promise that people of African descent would one day hold the priesthood, mm-hmm. right? We've got we, we've got that those promises, um, and we've also got promises that are that I believe are given to queer people as well, uh, and actually given to all people. And we haven't worked out those those uh, promises yet, um, and those th- uh, and we'll see where that goes. But we can le- lean into those promises. Yeah. Another thing that you really oopsie. Um, what you really get a sense of is that the uh, that the the people of God in the Book of Acts refused to accept crumbs. Mm. You know, they weren't satisfied with you know not knowing. They 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 grabbed onto the the spirit. They grabbed onto the gift of tongues. They grabbed onto the gift of healing. They're like, we're not going to be satisfied with. Um, uh, with crumbs, and I think we, as queer people in the church, we should not be satisfied with with crumbs of toleration. Like, oh, I'm just going to give you this little handout, and you will will appease you with this little thing. Like, the what was so powerful about those people on the margins in the book of Acts is they lived into those promises and refused to accept crumbs. Mm. And if we had even half the faith they did. And by we, I mean we as a church, not just we queer people, but we yeah. as a whole church. If we had half the faith they did, we could ha- do those same things again. I have no doubt about it. Mm. And one of the things um, we can look into is um, a lot of people don't notice this, but I'm going to, to quote. So Peter, in part part of his justification for the speaking uh, of tongues and all these miraculous uh, Pentecostal manifestations of the Spirit— he quotes, and this is verse. Uh, this is chapter two of Acts, verse uh, seventeen. Peter quotes Joel, and Joel uh, saying this, verse seventeen. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. I want to stop there and, and let's look at that word "all." It's not just on straight people. It's not just on white people. It's not just on men. It's on all flesh. Mm. And it's not even just among believers. There's a sense in which this light of Christ um, can be claimed by anyone um, where they are on their journey mm. in some sense. So so part of, the la- part of what it means to be a restoration church in the last days is we've got the Spirit of God being poured out upon all flesh. And here's where, where it goes on. To, uh, Peter goes on to say, quoting Joel, um, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So part of being a restoration church in the last days is to have our sons and our daughters, people of all genders, prophesying. So if people say, well, where are women prophets? I mean, look, that is one of the marks of the restored church mm. is to have women with some sense of prophetic um, access and mm. prophetic responsibility. And so we can we can uplift our hopes for that and how that will unfold in our okay. generation. Another thing, to, uh, like you said, Pentecost is about diversity, diversity of languages, diversity of cultures. Um, at this point, we don't have any Gentiles in yet. That comes later in Acts chapter 10. But you've got this ever-increasing uh, sense of people who are not content with the crumbs of, oh, I just have to listen to that language. I get it in my own language, right? I am going to to claim something on my own. And then there's this uh, other lovely, uh, just briefly in Acts chapter 4, you realize that this inbreaking of the Spirit of God 
leads them to this particular um, social and, and economic communitarian lifestyle. Okay. Um, you know what I'm talking about, this text? Well, I was about to ask, are you about to talk about why they got put into jail? Uh, no. Okay. I will uh, read verses 32 uh, through 34. Okay. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And here's the result of all that, verse 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the uh, prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now, this is very similar to the the restored United Order that we had, yeah. the Law of Consecration. Yeah. Um, and I just think this is really beautiful. This is another example of the Spirit boldly moving radically among the margins because they were on the margins of the Roman Empire. You had this big, big economic structure, which they opted out of. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you have a foothold of a Zion community that gets started here mm. because they refused to accept the crumbs that the Roman Empire had for them. Mm. Like they could have been Christians and believers and then not and not actually done this, right? If you think about it. But they were prompted by Jesus' resurrection to say, look, we've got a new life here and we're going to live and flow through this world differently. We're going to take care of each other because we're one. What happens to, like if I walk into my bed over there and I stub my foot, I can't just say, whoops, my brain can't say to my foot, oops, too bad for you. My brain, we're going to feel it too, (laughs) you know? My whole body will cringe when something happens to my foot. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the biggest things that we that many people miss out on uh, if they're in a dominant position in the church because they're like, okay, I'm, I'm straight, I'm white, I'm, I'm wealthy, I'm, I'm uh, male, I'm whatever. And, I'm and okay. What? I thought you said I'm mayo. Like I was like, mayo. dang, just come after your people like mayo. that, Derek. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm You're mayo. You're male, got it. Yeah, and uh, and they're like, well, I'm all set, right? That's what they say here in New England. I'm all set, <laughs> and but what they realize is they can't be whole when someone that they are one with is not whole as well. Yeah, and uh, um, and I think that 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 is so true here that they're actually living this out where they took people that had privilege, gave it up. People who had – they didn't have to, right? They could right. have said, oh, I'm going to keep my money. But they they let go of their privilege to benefit those who didn't have it. And I think that's what a real Zion people will do. Mm. There will be straight people in this church who let go of their privilege and say, look, we're going to lift up. And the same thing with, with white people. Um, we have to let go of our privilege and actually make room for um, leadership and uh, visibility for people of color. And we yeah. have to be accountable to those people. There was a sense of mutual accountability here in Acts chapter 4, the way they lived. Um, they were all accountable um, a- because they knew that they were one. Mm. You can't... Like, okay, here's another thing. Say, Derek, I'm going to give you this magical trip to Disneyland. I'll be, like, happy. 
But if you say, Derek, you have to leave your arm here in Massachusetts and the rest of you will go to Disneyland. I'm going to say no because mm. I'm not going without my arm. <laughs> and there are straight people in this church who think they can get to the celestial kingdom without queer people. I'm like, what are you thinking? It's mm-hmm. not going to be Disneyland if mm-hmm. you're not all there. Yeah. <laughs> and a, an essential part of your body is not there. Mm. You cannot enjoy the celestial kingdom thinking it's all going to be all straight people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is very beautifully illustrated by how the the spirit radically moved among the apostles in Acts chapter 4. There it is again. Just another witness of this truth. We talked about this before when we talked about uh, when we talked about the parable of the lost sheep. Mm-hmm. The importance of not only is every sheep important because the Lord values all of us, but simply that we are not all acceptable unless we're all there. Right. Like we don't we're not going anywhere without each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I need you. You need me to get there. Like this is a very interdependent work that we're doing. And then th- this is just further evidence to me of how interdependent Christianity truly is. It requires us to work together. And uh, we can't we can't be godly. We can't be like Christ. We can't get to the celestial kingdom without this work that right. we are doing together. Like I, I love how many times and how very variantly we are taught this very principle. So thank mm-hmm. you for thank you for bringing that yeah, up. Thanks. Uh, do you got anything uh, else that you want to nope. say about cool? Because that is going to segue pretty well into what I want to go over for the prayer roll. And uh, I'm putting on the prayer roll today the Payson, Utah Temple Presidency. Um, Derek, you actually brought this to my attention before the show started, but I had heard about this. Uh, a friend of mine actually was an ordinance worker in the temple uh, for the last year and a half, two years. Since 2017, when they did the policy change with regard to who can work in the temple. Until 2017, if you were over 30 and single, you could not work in the temple. But my friend who was over 30 and single just started working in the temple around that time. This young man also happens to be black, and he happens to have a full head of of, uh, of locks, very similar, very similar to me. And I, in fact, he actually styles them the same way that I do. Now, he and I have several things in common in that we're both black, we're both Mormon, we're both ordinance workers, or at least up until yesterday, we were both ordinance workers in our temples. Uh, but he was released recently. And he was not released because of unworthiness he was not released because his temple recommend expired he was not released because he's moving he was not released because he asked to be released uh he was released because of his hair he was told that his hair would be a distraction to the patrons quote unquote and further he was told that in in another part of the world his hair might not be a problem but on the wasatch front it is so that, that that's unfortunate for several reasons but i really just want to be clear about something like like i said i'm an ordinance worker in the temple as well i know for a fact there aren't rules against locks in fact this is what this is what the rules about working in the temple are uh quote personal dress or grooming should not be a distraction to patrons or other temple workers whatsoever ye do do all to the glory of god give none offense uh, another line Keep your appearance suitable for a representative of the Lord. 
And then the last thing here with regard to hair, uh, hairstyles of both the brethren and the sisters should not be extreme. Brethren should follow the missionary standard of being clean shaven. So there's nothing in there that says locks are a problem. Like this is just the way black people's hair grows. If a black person's hair grows and never takes a comb to it, they can still wash it and all that stuff, but they just never take a comb to it. Locks is what happens. Like that is a natural consequence of how black people's hair grows. And for this, like, I'll, I'll just say that for the last few months, I've worked in the temple groomed as like groomed in the same way that my friend has been groomed. Like today I walked into my temple shift. I worked four hour mid shift from 10 to two. I did, I worked in the baptistry for four hours and I did 40 young people through the baptistry all by myself. Like I did that today dressed and groomed just as you see me, Derek. Like I have long locks and I have a beard. I'm working in the temple with a beard. Mm. I'm technically breaking a rule, but I'm doing it because even they know it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I have a beard. It doesn't matter that my hair is long. What matters yeah. is that I'm worthy to be in the temple and that I'm willing and wanting to serve in there. That is what really matters. Now, what I really want to get to here is the significance of how the temple presidency in Pace in Utah interpreted these rules to the point where my friend can no longer work in the temple. This is not about his hair. Like... The fact that the temple presidency saw locks as, uh, as problematic, distracting, or offensive just reinforces negative stereotypes and contributes to the othering of black bodies in the church. And it, and it really needs to stop. Like, I am tired of, of knowing that there's a seat at the table for my people and getting Gretchen Wieners by folks whose racism is far more problematic, far more distracting, and far more offensive than what I could ever do with my hair. Did, did you get that reference, Derek? No. <laughs> uh, Gretchen Wieners, mean girls. Uh, she's the one who goes, you can't sit with us. Like Which that. I haven't seen. Oh, my gosh, Derek. Maybe I get my white card taken away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Um, but that is like... That's a, that, that, that's a big thing for me. Like I just this week, Derek, I, I went to the temple to be set apart as an ordinance worker for the last six months or so. I've been just a baptistry coordinator at the uh, at the Boston Temple. This week I mm -hmm. went in and I saw President LaPierre. He laid his hands on upon my locks and he set me apart as an ordinance worker because he found me worthy and my hair was not a problem. Hair is not the issue here. The issue is that, again, the people who are in charge, the people who are in authority deemed it ungodly, deemed it offensive, deemed it distracting for a black man to be living his best, blessed, and blackest life within the walls of their temple. And that is my real problem with what happened here, is that blackness has once again be, been perceived as less than whiteness. And I really hope the Payson Temple uh, presidency repents for this because it's because we don't even have a lot of black people in the church, let alone black ordinance workers. And the fact that they kicked out a black ordinance worker just hurts my heart. It just, it says we don't have a place here. But Derek, you do, you were talking about just now how we should not accept crumbs and uh, how the people mm -hmm. in the Old Testament didn't accept crumbs. Me being a black man, you being a queer person in the church and knowing that we have a seat at the table, we really do have a responsibility to refuse crumbs. You know, we should not accept crumbs from the table. We have a seat at the table. We've been known that we had a seat at the table. And 
instances like this are just further evidence to me that we have to assert that we belong. And that looks different thi- that looks differently to different people, but I am really just I- I'm really just done with this whole being perceived as less by people who are in charge. And um, yeah, I-, I just want better for my people, man. I, I hope the Payson Temple repents. Yeah, I mean, I don't have much to add to that, but I have a few things to think about. Is uh, one is this this concept that we're all in the image of God, all of us. Yes, especially black people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what you're doing there is this is kind of almost analogous to the MFA of thinking, oh, the MFA. We're treating it like it's a space for white people, and then black people, if they come, are just kind of accessories. That's not how it is in the kingdom of God. We're all, um, we've got the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's the margins is where you find Christ. Mm. And I think that is is going to be most true in the temples of our God. Mm. And, and that's how it should be. I, I have... Uh, um, I'm not. I'm not sure. Was it if there was like a patron complaint, or if there was some other? It came. I don't know how it happened, but, but what this reminds me of is something that I heard recently. You know how they say it takes a village to raise a child. Mm-hmm. It also takes a village to hurt a child, mm. because you've got um, an accountability. You've got an, a collaboration. If 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 one, what theoretically should happen is if if one child is is about to get hurt or is in danger, you've got the rest of the, the community rallying around that child to protect that child. And so that it's not just uh, the temple presidency that has a problem. It's the whole community because the he, he's doing it in a context where he knows he can do this without and get away with it. Yeah. Like if he had a community of people, a constituency of people who were woke enough to, to he would know oh I can't do that here because I will have people all uh, you know I will have a I will have a mess if I let let a black person go mm. like if if that was the community then it wouldn't have happened mm. right if if there were people if there were white allies to stick up and say hey look you can't do this um, and and the type of community where where they uh, where they know what they what they can't get away with anymore because we've got we've got good people with power who will step up. There's a lot of uh, value in this preemptive thing, and that's why. Uh, what do you think allies can do in this situation? Like, what can I do? Like, what can like what could white people in in Payson do? Like, what what would definitely you write a letter to the temple. Write a letter to the Payson Temple. Like, you can email them. You can even call them. Like, that's what a lot of my friends have already done on behalf of uh, my friend who was recently released from the Payson Temple. Also spread awareness that this kind of thing has happened, you know. Um, Several of our mutual friends have already shared his story uh, because it's an important one. It's a necessary one. And it further spreads awareness that Mm -hmm. racism is very much alive and well in the church today. Like, 41 years ago, we couldn't even go into temples. And two years ago... My friend couldn't even work at the temple because of his uh, because of his marital status and his age. So I, yeah. I just want us to draw attention to the fact that this is still an issue because a lot of 
white folks in the church today think that racism isn't really an issue that affects black people now that the priesthood ban has, you know, been rescinded. So uh, we, we need to draw attention to that. Yeah. Just because the priest just because the priesthood ban has ended doesn't mean that racism is over. So spread awareness yeah. that way and also let the pace in Utah Temple know what you think about this. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it would help um, to in a sense for the uh, for the for the temple workers who I'm sure know and love this dude to organize and to unionize and say, well, if he's not here, we're not going to be here. And none of them show up to their shifts hmm. until this is fixed. You would get it fixed really quickly. Oh, absolutely. Right? If you have, um, especially allies who put themselves in a position of risk, because they, they could all do that and they all get released, right? Mm-hmm. But if they all say what you do to him is what you do to us. Yeah. That is what Christ would do. That's what Christ did on the cross. Like, that's mm. the atonement there, right? Mm. Christ taking on something he didn't quite have to in order to lift up the whole world. And that's what, what the beauty of the gospel is, is it teaches us to do that. And I, and I think if they organized and, and all of the temple workers were on board and say, you can't do that to him, whatever, if, you're, if he's not going to show up, then we're not going to show up until this is fixed, uh, then the temple presidency now has a different set of options. He can either lose them all or keep them all. And losing them all, I mean, yeah, he can replace them. But it, it raises the cost of doing the, the wrong thing to the mm. point where uh, where he might not do it. Mm. Or even if he does, then it will get a, another layer of visibility. Yeah. And then this guy won't feel um, alone. So I don't have any anyone for the prayer roll, but I'm going to put them on the prayer roll too, on the whole community as well. Um, because cause it takes a, a community to raise a child, but also... a takes a community a village to harm a child and, uh, and here we have someone who's harmed and this should not be uh, ignored i think we'll i think we're going to address this though and i think we're going to uh create a great deal of awareness around this particular issue um, yeah but i'm glad it's being handled i'm glad people are rallying around this young man and hopefully something gets done we will uh pray for a speedy resolution but yeah that's uh that's all i wanted to say about that yeah. And that's a good place to end as well. Yeah. One of the longer e- episodes, I'll edit this appropriately. Yes. But uh, it's been a great episode. I really yeah. like the stuff we got to talk yeah. about. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Um, share this once you've heard, l- listened to it. Share it with others. Share it with anyone who may be preparing lessons this week. Mm. Um, and spread the news about Beyond the Block. And then take what you learn in those two hours and carry it forward the rest of the week. Carry it Beyond the Block. Yes, Derek. I like it. We will see you guys next see week. See you later. Bye.